Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week? I've been moderately well, Gary, thank you. Much of a, much of a head cold, but you know, I'm a hero, so I don't like to talk about it. Moderately well is the best many can hope for. Indeed. So today, Michael, is a day of celebration, which I hope will make you immediately feel better. What are we celebrating, Gary? Well, we are um, celebrating with Greenpeace, Michael, the closing of Germany's last nuclear power plant. Well, yeah, that's obviously something for the Germans to be very happy about because they're tough, hardy people and they can enjoy being tough and hardy next winter when the lights go out. Yes, Greenpeace uh, have organised a celebratory, uh, should we say, moment at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin to mark the occasion. The organisation said, Michael, that this marks nuclear moving to history. As such, we should make this a day to remember. <clears throat> a wonderful encapsulation of the green movement, Michael. Very, very involved in highlighting environmental problems and very, very involved in making sure that energy sources which could help us deal with those problems are never implemented. I think it's important always to keep in mind why Germany decided ultimately to do completely mothball its nuclear uh, facilities because as a result of Pacific Ring seismic activity and a tsunami in Japan, hitting a Japanese nuclear facility, which led to the death of, was it three people? The number is unclear, but it's it's down there. Uh, Germany, not famous for its seismic activity, not that close to the Pacific Rim. Also, it's a long time since Germany suffered from a tsunami, decided on the foot of a tsunami in the Pacific Rim and seismic activity in Japan to close down its nuclear power stations. The funny thing is, this is happening. I, I, yesterday, I was reading uh, a long and tedious piece from by an energy guy, an energy economist, talking about the energy situation in Ger- in in Germany and in, in in wider Europe. Now that we're coming out of uh, the the winter and we have survived our first winter without Russian gas. He said, you know, everybody's sort of breathing a sigh of relief and it's all very lovely. He said, for example, I think Ger- he said Germany had 64% of its storage capacity still full. He, However, he went through a, a, a bit of analysis, Gary, which suggested that, you know, lads, we got off pretty light. And, and in the winter going by, we still had Russian gas for quite a bit of time. Now we have absolutely no Russian gas at all. The Germans have done fairly significant work in moving over to gen- to expand their capacity to bring in uh, LNG. But, and he was going on the basis, I think, that they still had at least one nuclear power station. In the advent of a cold winter, as opposed to the exceptionally mild winter that we, we ended up having, we could be in trouble. And it just seems to me that this is a perfect example, an absolutely perfect example of people going through a whole, Peace, Gary, just a peace, a bit of performance art, because this is something that will look good for the Greens, it'll look good for the, the, the that tail, which seems to wag the dog across a lot of Western Europe, without any serious grown-up adult consideration for, not, I'm not, not the medium term, not the long term, but the very, very fucking short term. Next winter, there are serious structural problems regarding energy generation in Germany. Remember, in the year gone by, because of gas shortages, German indus- indus- those German industries that used very high levels of, of uh, electricity, very high levels of energy, uh, for example, I imagine alum- aluminium smelting, th- things like that, although n- nothing is more than aluminium smelting, but 
other similar industries. Actually, lowered their production. They shut down capacity because of energy concerns. Now, is that the future that we're looking at? That we're basically choosing for the sake of performative act to impoverish ourselves and to close down industries. So, Michael, how likely is a cold winter? They do happen, you know, Jerry. Cynics like you might say that, Michael, but are we really to believe that a government would, you know, dismantle its energy apparatus while knowing that a single cold winter could destroy it if they expected a cold winter? They expected a cold winter. <laughs> so, you, you, <laughs> so you're thinking that German economic policy is based on the fact that the Germans have actually discovered some secret capacity to predict next winter's uh, weather seven months out, but they're not telling the rest of us? I I suspect a group of highly powered experts and academics have come up with a very detailed model which shows that no winter will ever be cold enough to justify nuclear energy. You may well be right. Uh, when When I opened this, actually, I made a slight mistake. I said they're turning off the last reactor. They're actually turning off the last three reactors together at once. And Michael, you said that this was about Fukushima. I would argue this isn't actually about Fukushima. This is about the fact the Germans have an incredibly powerful green movement, which is absolutely anti-nuclear energy and has been for decades. And in Germany in particular, you have the environment minister is a green and the economic minister is a green. The environment minister came out, Michael, and said that the risks of nuclear power are ultimately unmanageable. Which is great news to the coal industry in Germany, which has been, I mean, they've seen some bumper seasons, Michael. Um, Turns out that when you turn off all of your your nuclear energy, something needs to fill that gap. And the German attempts to invest in renewables have, shall we say, not gone exceedingly well. So they've been using lignite instead. You know, not not to constantly beat many dead horses, Gary, but lignite, which is the great... German energy resource. They have huge brown coal, and that's what it is, brown coal, mines, which they're going to use to generate extra. We know that not ones or twos or threes of people, but across the world, hundreds of thousands of people die as a result, or have shortened lives as a result, of particulate air pollution. The kind of particulate air pollution which lignite, burning lignite, is very good at producing. And yet that doesn't seem to be the problem. The problem is some no... Uh, it was, Greenpeace organised the party, wasn't it? Greenpeace, by the way, have a long history of this sort of stuff. And they're also very against certain GMO crops like golden rice, which have the potential to, to massively reduce suffering in the world. Uh, Greenpeace really solidly against anything, really. Oh yeah, you don't want all those people not going blind because they might get the the vitamins they require through GMO rice. No, you wouldn't want that. The trigger, like how easy it is to trigger someone to call you racist. But if you're the right kind of organization, you can spend decades effectively campaigning for the blinding of massive amounts of Africans. And because you're the right sort of of organization, no one goes, that's kind of racist though, isn't it? Like you're spending a lot of time saying that more Africans should go blind. Now, to be fair, Gary, to be fair, it's mostly Asians that are going blind because of this and wouldn't go blind. Mostly Asians in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Philippines, places like that. Isn't it? Isn't there also a, just a, a bit of a slight comedy to the fact that one of the founders of Greenpeace is now one of the world's leading advocates of nuclear power? There is a bit of humour there. Or some would say a coming to sense. 
or you could say a coming to sense, a metanoia, a change of heart, a catharsis, all of these things. It just, it's so pathetic. Particularly in an age when, genuinely, if you look at the new technologies, the new, the new types of nuclear energy that are coming back on, on, on flow, the, the, the much better understanding of the science and of the use and the reuse of the materials and of the stability uh, of those materials and our capacity to store them safely. I mean, it would be ridiculous to say that any form of energy generation is without its hazards or risks. Again and again and again, we have to say, in all areas of life in human endeavor and in economics, you're talking about trade-offs. You get something, you lose something. You lose something, you gain something. And there's this absolute unwillingness to recognize that they're making choices that have very significant negative trade-offs, and that those negative trade-offs may be far higher, in fact, I believe, are far worse, far higher, than the negative trade-offs involved in making the other choice. But because this is theater, it really does feel like, yeah, again, we're talking about the, the, the adults have left the room. Anyway, this is not a choice we will ever have to make, Gary, because we're never going to have a nuclear power station to turn off. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, it kind of reminds me, this whole sort of just playing to the crowd thing, and it enables us to say, you know, oh, well, we have no uh, nuclear power on, on paper, so that's a good thing. And then what your actual energy composition is made up of, or if you're importing power from people who use nuclear, that's all kind of you know, left by the wayside. It's it's a bit of a, just a statistical trick. And it reminds me of, of um, measurements of CO2, because the way CO2 is measured is country, uh, CO2 emissions are measured based on the country in which those emissions are uh, produced. And I've always thought that's the wrong way to do it, Michael, because China, for instance, produces billions of tons of CO2 a year, a massive amount of global emissions. But what I think we should do about this is not measure it where it is, you know, where it is used in cases where it is used to produce goods that are going to be sold to other places. So, for instance, most a lot of China's emissions are actually emitted in order to provide goods for other countries. And you end up with weird situations, Michael. Like, let's say if you are a TD and you want to drive down Ireland's emissions. Well, you could, let's say, handicap Irish agriculture. Because then Ireland produces less emissions. And then you can import from half a world away beef from other countries to fill the public demand. On paper, emissions have gone down in Ireland. Globally, emissions have probably gone up. But you don't give a shit about that because who cares about that? Because that's Brazil's problem. Whereas I think if we, we slightly reoriented things to go, yes, they produce this, but this percentage is actually going to be attributed to your country, you would find a lot of things just work themselves out pretty quickly, Michael. Well, particularly, I think the case of Irish, what is it, 90% of Irish beef ends up going for export? Um, Irish beef is pretty well grass-fed, grass-finished. We have a climate which is just pretty well perfect for the growing of grass. And that kind of beef production is about as green as you're going to get. But we're willing to sacrifice that and destroy uh, a highly successful industry producing a very, very high quality product, which a product which, by the way, in comparison to other countries which finish not on grass, but have grass feed, but finish on feedlots and feed them on all sorts of things, including sort of corn syrup and molasses, we won't name names, is actually a much healthier product also. 
But we'll do that because that looks good. And then we'll we'll bring it in from other countries. As you say, we'll import it and we'll bring it in from other countries for where it's far less efficient, far less uh, well adapted, and with far less uh, regulation regarding, say, the use of hormones or steroids and antibiotics and things. But we'll have done our bit. We can put our, we we can hold our heads up high the next time we go to oh God, whatever the the, the acronym meeting that we happen to be going to at the time, whether it's UN or WEF or what the hell. And we'll have done it, but we won't have actually done anything which is seriously positive either for food production or the environment, we'll have, but we'll have done something nice. Well, no, my point is actually, I'm just taking farming as an example, that because of the way we measure these things and the incentives that causes, we can actually make things worse on a global basis but look like we're doing well. Like in there, we'll drive down our emissions. So we're doing well. And Brazil's emissions will not be counted as being attributed to us. So if their emissions go up more than ours go down, the world is worse off on the standard understanding of this. But we will say we've done the good thing. And there is a host of areas where stuff like that is happening. Now, it's also very clear why we count things this way. The general explanation is that one, it's it's ease of measurement. But I think a large part of it is if we count it the way I'm talking about, you would see the West massively, massively increase in the amount of emissions tied to it. And countries like uh, China, Japan, India, uh, Saudi Arabia, massively decreasing. And we don't want that because it's very easy. It was kind of handy that China is the worst. To be fair, to be fair, yes, I take your point and your point is decent. China is pretty bad. India is pretty bad. I mean, they are burning a hell of a lot of coal. And as we jet, as we close down our nuclear power stations and build more and more solar panels across, across the Arctic Circle, it is also true. They keep building the, the coal power stations every, every other week uh, because that's what they have. And they ain't going to stop for us, even though we should do it because as world leaders, our moral example, Gary, will inspire them to change. Actually, that that's an interesting point you said, Michael. They won't change that for us. And of course they won't because they are doing it largely for us. Massive amounts of their energy consumption are in the production of goods for what would have traditionally been called the first world. So for all we complain about their expansion of their energy sector, a large part of it is ensuring that they are still able to produce goods at the level they have that we demand from them. So they are really doing it for us, Michael. Yeah, they're they're. I think they're doing it for themselves as well. In fairness, Gary, I mean they're not they're not giving them. Uh, you know, they're not sending them with with ribbons and happy Christmas messages on them. They they do expect some money in return. No, and they they want to get rich, but Michael. If we weren't demanding those goods for them, if we weren't paying for them, they wouldn't be doing that because they'd have no need to do that. I suppose. Anyway, speaking of uh, Santa Clauses and stuff, uh, well, I don't know if that's just about the most pathetic segue. I did have something in mind there, but it just escaped me and I'm going to blame my weakened state there. Uh, Joe Biden, the American Santa Claus, (laughs) came to visit. A truly pathetic showing by the Irish media. Um, I mean, videos of reporters calling over Joe Biden for selfies, then getting a selfie, then News Talk doing a story about how their reporter got a selfie. Michael, we, we sent Ben out to that to just to get some footage of it. If there had been a video of Ben calling on Joe Biden for a selfie, and then he had somehow gotten a selfie, Grift would not have put up an article 
on how Ben got a selfie with Joe Biden, Ben would have returned to the office and I would have been waiting for him with a belt. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, and, and then the, one of the president's dogs barks at Joe Biden and sort of reporting to put up what are apologetics for a dog barking at someone. Apparently, the dog that was friendly, or at least not unfriendly, was uh, the older dog, and he was well socialized. The second dog was younger and had had was a COVID dog, and therefore was less used to dealing with people, less socialized, and that's why he parked at him. It was like as if they were some kind of odd magical thinking. I don't know that that people might say, "Oh, well, you know the way dogs are. A dog can tell, you know." You know, the other way you'd, you'd meet an elderly woman and if the dog didn't like you, she wouldn't like you because dogs have that moral intuition to recognize untrustworthy people and they'll bark and growl at a bad person. And rather than allow people to think, oh, the dog didn't like Joe Biden, he mightn't be a good man. We had, to, we, had, we had explanations in the Irish Times about why the dog was barking. It was just bizarre nonsense. And we should say, to be fair, None of this is Joe Biden's fault. Biden, I thought, was fine, you know, I mean, what he said. I mean, he made a few gaffes, but, you know, it, it occurs to me, while our, some of our friends in America, and, and they may be right, talk about the, the gaff stuff with Biden and as somehow, or not somehow, but actually indicative of some kind of cognitive impairment or decline. You know, I was going back over some of the stuff. Joe hasn't had a capacity for the fairly spectacular gaff going back a very long way. I thought he was fairly good, this visit, by the comment about the black and tans. Yeah, the black and tans, though, in fairness, was a pretty good one. But it wasn't. I mean, we have to remember, this is the... Just to get a sense, Joe Biden is elected senator, junior senator in Delaware in 1972. Just to get a sense of how long he's been on the scene. Nixon was still president when Joe was elected to Senator for the first time. Joe's first run for presidency was again was in the primary against Dukakis in nineteen eighty eight, when you have Bush One's first presidency. I mean the man is around a long time. And the reason he comes he he crashes and burns in in eighty eight because it wasn't that that was wasn't that the year he did the, the plagiarism stuff. With the Neil Kinnock speech, I think that was that it was eighty eight. So and Joe has a long and a noble history of the gap, but I thought he did pretty well. And he a bar the the black and tan one. Uh, the you're you're telling me I thought was rather good about the uh, the girl that almost hit him with the slither. The Irish Times had an article with her uh, her father where he said that the uh, other parents in the locality had started calling her Lee Hurley Oswald. Which is definitely the best thing to to come out of this trip, I think. I think that's top class. I really do. I think some sometimes these things get out, and you think, "Oh, fair, that's it's it's okay." But I that's genuinely that's genuine class, though. I, I mean, I saw a great amount of Irish journalists openly taking delight and kind of taunting the British newspapers and British politicians who took this as a snub, whether or not it was. And the entire thing just came across as one, it was the Irish press's general approach to power, but just magnified. And two, just incredibly childish behaviour. In fact, a number of journalists themselves seem to be uncomfortable with everything about it, which is probably the right approach to take. But uh, it was it's just a, it was a great week for journalism, Michael. Oh, no, are, are we refer referring to the rather unfortunate experience of the BBC journalist? 
who decided to to take on Elon Musk and came out rather the worse for it. Yes, this this is that was a, the BBC's North American technology correspondent managed to get an interview with Elon Musk at short notice on the proviso that the entire thing be broadcast on Twitter spaces. So basically that the entire thing go out live and could not be in any way edited or, or you know, contained. And they agreed. And it became very rapidly clear that the journalist was incredibly poorly briefed, didn't really know anything he was talking about other than the most basic quotes about it from other people, which just walked himself into a corner and Musk just started pummeling him over and over again. Now, Musk was, to be fair, a very hostile interview, but he was shockingly ill-prepared. I shared it around with all the gripped reporters, not in a sort of laugh at this man, but as a sort of, look what happens when you go into a hostile interview and you don't know what you're talking about. So make sure this never happens to you. As I said, I said to you before, before we're done, uh, I suspect that you're looking at a bunch of journalists in the Western world who increasingly, because of the way media training happens for politicians, who desperately don't want to look angry or aggressive, and uh, they want people, to, the journalists, to like them, which is always a mistake. They want the people to like. They don't do a lot of pushback, or if they do do pushback, if they do it in a different way. I, I. I wonder how much pushback this guy never really figured. Now, he, what I did think was strange, I think you're absolutely right on the level of preparation, was when you're going in with Elon Musk, this is a big interview. Musk doesn't give millions of interviews. You're giving, he is, he's a bright man. He knows about the things that he knows about. You can't just wing it. He's the world's also, the world's richest man, he controls one of the world's most important social media platforms and other shit. I would have thought it would have been pretty bad. You would have spent a couple of days pretty intensively preparing yourself. And you wouldn't just throw out, oh, well, it literally was. Mary O'Rourke, the, the, the great late Mary O'Rourke, was very fond of dismissing uh, comments from the opposition as being, oh, yes, 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 I know, Dort Ban Lumgo, Dort Ban Lay. One woman told another woman, yeah, that's fine, I'm not I'm not listening to that nonsense. And that's what he was kind of doing. Well, a friend of mine told me, that's not really going to cut it with Elon Musk. Now, if anybody out there who's listening in hasn't seen it, it's it's widely available. It's only, what, five, five minutes long or so. It's such a short enough thing, the clips that are going around. It's pretty barbaric. I mean, it's just, you, you cringe for the guy, really. You do it, you kind of feel embarrassed for him at the end of the it. The thing I would say there is, my understanding is that the interview was basically done at, at zero notice. Like, he asked on Twitter, Elon Musk said yes, turned up the next day. So he wouldn't have a time to prepare to that extent. But the point I would make here, Michael, is if this is not some random reporter. This is the BBC's North American tech correspondent. You should not need exactly. multiple days to prep for an interview like this because your entire career involves the collection of information about this topic. Like, you should know this. You should be able to do an interview like this at the drop of a hat if you were in that position. And it was it was a bizarre interview. And it, you are correct that politicians have become trained to answer in particular ways, as have business leaders, and they're very shy about being aggressive. And that's given journalists a lot of cover to basically chase after politicians, asking the same question again, trying to whittle them down, knowing that the politician is very unlikely to just look over at them and just say, will you fucking leave it? The thing I would say here, uh, and this is just a general media literacy point, I would suspect you take most Irish journalists, you put them into this interview situation, they would do exactly this badly 
because they know this little about what they're talking about. Now, there's certain areas where that's not true. I've generally found people who do work on crime know a lot about that, about your Garda procedures, the people involved, all that sort of stuff. Political correspondents tend to know about politics and the internals of it, although actually a lot of them are just bullshit merchants anyway. But your general reporter, your general correspondent, it's always good to, when you're looking at an interview with these people, Think to yourself, does this person know anything about what they're you know, they're talking about? Or are they just repeating talking points that other people have told them? So, for instance, this guy goes against Elon Musk and he tries to quote the Institute uh, for Strategic Dialogue. But then he makes a throwaway mention to his own experience and Musk just hones in on that and just hammers him until the guy is basically forced to accept that uh, he can't substantiate his claim. And Elon Musk openly calls him, uh, says he's lying. So it's not a great look. And as I said, it was all on Twitter spaces, so it all went up live. So you can't... Normally what you will do in these situations, you will edit interviews for many reasons. The general excuse is for reasons of time, that the interview is too long. Media organizations use that excuse to also cut out, commonly but not always, anything that's embarrassing to their reporters. So stuff like this happens more than you think. The end user just doesn't get to see it because there's no obligation to show it to you, which is one of the dangers of live television. Now, occasionally they don't edit out the embarrassing things, either because of, you know, ethical constraints or, surprisingly enough, um, or surprisingly commonly, because the reporter in question needs to be brought down a peg or two or isn't liked by management or the editors. But this is not like a reporter doing incredibly pearly. This is, this just happens. Like this is common. And you shouldn't expect any Irish uh, interview you see to be any better. And I suppose just to, to close on that point of media literacy, if an interview is edited in any way, just don't trust anything in it. Yeah. Uh, you, you really have no clue. There's just one thing I, I want to just ad, uh, advert to it before we close up today. I don't. I think you 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 saw the. There's a new piece of legislation being worked on, and which for, came to my attention only a couple of days ago because I, I haven't been paying much attention. I never do. When Pat Kenny led, and he said there were going to be talking about proposed legislation to curb speculation in the property. Uh, is this the bill that looks, just from the description of it, to be openly unconstitutional? Well, on the face of it, it, ha- it does have that smack. Then again, Gary, I would just, I would suggest to you a hell of a lot of the stuff that's been fiddled around and done in the last couple of years in, in around the housing market and property market has probably been unconstitutional. Do you remember, we talked about before, do you remember, the, I can't remember, was it, was it one of the rent control pieces? And there was the bizarre moment where you had, was it a high court judge or a Supreme Court judge was being interviewed on RTE for some reason and basically seemed to be saying, Lads, please just ask us. Please just, just, just say, come, somebody, come to us and ask us. Because by God, we will strike this down so quickly, you won't notice. I mean, I've got to say, Michael, I think you're taking a, a, I think you're taking a very naive understanding. I, I mean, when you say things like the government has passed multiple bills that are clearly unconstitutional, it's not the proper understanding of what unconstitutional actually means in Ireland, Michael. Go on, exp- explain to me. Well, you say, you're saying that these bills are unconstitutional because they seem to, on the face of it, breach aspects of the Constitution. Yeah. Which is, you know, I've got to say, Michael, a naive understanding, because that's not what an unconstitutional bill actually is. A bill becomes unconstitutional at the exact moment the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional, and up to that moment, we've got to presume constitutional uh, 
correctness. And that's the approach the government has taken, and that's worked for them in a lot of cases where it probably shouldn't have. I don't want to get into an argument about semantics here, but the law stands as the law until it, unless until the law is struck down. We can agree on that, certainly. And you are correct. And one of the problems here is, well, finding somebody who has standing and are the money and are the desire to do it. And finding a court that is willing to hear the case insufficient time before the piece of legislation lapses or is further amended. Do you think a court would really do that, Michael? Let's say a court considering a piece of COVID legislation, that they might keep pushing it back until it was, you know, they could then say that it was no longer relevant to decide upon it, even though it was very clear that such legislation was highly likely to be brought back in at some later point. And the state itself had said it wouldn't try and make that argument to give you just a very vague hypothetical that you absolutely didn't happen. Say on religious freedom or something like that, or right, right, assembly, or right to assembly. Yeah, obviously that kind of theoretical. We wouldn't want to enter, enter into that kind of hypotheticals. However, anyway, this it's just you know. First of all, legislation to curb speculation. It's one of those irregular verbs, isn't it? It's like I am an individual. You are a character, or I am an individual. You are eccentric. He is mad. You know, it's it's one of these. What precisely the difference between speculation is? on one hand, and our investment is on another. Like, once upon a time in Ireland, you had people who were called spec builders, and a spec builder was a speculative builder, which simply meant he built houses on the basis that somebody would come along and buy them, but he didn't know necessarily who, as opposed to a non-spec builder would build because somebody would come along and say, Edson, would you build me a house? But now they're, now speculating, spec, so they're going to do is, they're, they're talking about, Producing, introducing super taxes, uh, a 50% tax on increase in the value of rezoned property. Because, Gary, you see, it's the, it's the fault of the developers that the value of land massively increases when it's rezoned. It's nothing to do with the fact that we have the least densely populated countries in the world engaged in a kind of urban planning which insists that we can't go beyond the height of a tall man. And therefore, we go out and out and out and out at the same time, which and the, which produces the as a consequence when you have extremely limited planning in certain places. The consequence being the farmland, which has a value of fifteen thousand an acre, suddenly becomes worth millions because we have deliberately engineered an artificial scarcity. Nothing to do with that. But leave, leaving aside that, leaving aside all of that nonsense, and leaving aside the idea of the fact that people are hoarding land, Gary, hoarding bad men, bad. Hoarding land, and le- and you know, even if they had come out and said, you know what, we're just doing this as a tax, re- as a tax thing, we're doing it for revenue raising, which at least will be honest. All of this is of a piece, which is the desperate attempt to try and characterize the fault of the current problem as being builders, of being developers, of being speculators, people making money. That the, the the reason that we have a desperate shortage of housing, we have the desperate shortage of, re- of rental accommodation, that we have sky high rents, etc., etc., is the government and policies that have been pursued by successive governments in this country since the crash. So, but no, instead of addressing the the underlying causes and the legislation and the regulation which have caused that, let's look for a bogeyman. Let's look for a thing. We have now made it that builders are bad people, landlords. You saw the you saw the Irish Times article which said that Charlie Fitzgerald believed that next year fifteen thousand landlords is it or fifteen thousand are going to leave the market. I can't surprise there are fifteen thousand landlords left. Lifting it, absolutely, and 
which means the only people in the in the market, which I don't think, I mean, the fact that they're in there is not a bad thing, are going to be the large institutional ones. But we hate them as well. I, mean, I wouldn't. I think you can actually make a fairly good policy argument that the large institutional landlords provide a better service or at least a more equal service. And I wouldn't really have a problem if the government had a deliberate strategy of, you know, basically... Uh, shall we say, Michael, uh, incentivizing the market to conform to that. I mean, I'm not sure I would agree with it, but I would at least understand it. But it doesn't seem they actually do have a strategy of driving out small landlords in order to institutionalize effectively the market. It seems like it's just a thing happening that they either don't care about or don't know how to stop. Absolutely. it's. I mean, the idea of a strategic plan is just... It is to laugh, Gary, that they have a strategic plan for anything. But, Michael, it's not just... This entire area is nonsensical from the fact that you still have uh, local need requirements in um, in planning applications, even though was, those were pretty clearly found to be in breach of European law the better part of a decade ago. And occasionally someone on one of the councils brings it up in a sort of, oh, looks like we, we aren't able to do this. But I can tell you, Michael, from looking at different planning areas, every council I've checked has one of those requirements still in it. You know, that stops houses being built or sold in various areas. I, however, Michael, have found a way around it, which is not a um, a way that can be, you know, it doesn't scale up, but it was good enough to get me through planning. And that way is buying a property so old that the planning regulations don't apply to it. Yes, but Gary, you are cunning like the fox. So we all know. Anyway, listen. By the way, that that is actually a real thing. The planning regulations... Uh, you can buy houses that were built before those regulations came into force and they don't have to abide by certain of those regulations, which makes them a lot easier to buy or sell. Well, it's ridiculous that people are after, running around the gaff desperately trying to find loopholes in order to be able to buy a house and live in the place. Anyway. Yeah, when, when the when the ditch were reporting that certain ministers may have done things improperly on some of the... Um, of the um, the forms to get planning permission. I think that's absolutely understandable uh, because it's very easy to object, Michael. And if you're a politician, well, people, why wouldn't people who oppose you politically also try and stop you building a house? It's trivially easy. Absolutely. Absolutely, you're just your target. I think we, uh, since the it's the weekend and uh, the rain has stopped, it might be a, a, a moment to... Let the people back out. Well, at least let this person back out into the air and go for a walk. We shall be back uh, on Sunday week. Uh, hope you all stay well and mind yourselves. And uh, go buy some delicious uh, ice, or not ice cream, uh, lemonade. It's the weather for it. <laughs> all the best.